Well, as you know, we have been going through a series in the Gospel of Mark. Um, We are currently in Mark chapter 6, so I invite you to open your Bibles to uh, the Gospel of Mark chapter 6. Today uh, we will be focusing on verses uh, 30 through 44, but let me do a brief recap of where we have gotten so far in Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6 opens with Jesus returning to his hometown in Nazareth. Nazareth is in Galilee, which is the northern province of the, uh, of the, the people of Israel at the time. Uh, in the north you have Galilee, in the south you have uh, Judea, and in the middle, can't remember, it's some area. Um, as you know, it didn't go very well when Jesus returned to Nazareth. Uh, The people did not believe. He didn't do many miracles there. And so he leaves and he preaches in the surrounding villages. About that time, Jesus also sends out his 12 disciples with his authority to, to preach and to heal and to cast out demons. At that point, Mark brings us into this brief interlude where he talks about the the execution of John the Baptist by Herod. And that brings us up to our text today. The question that I want to pose today is, and the question that we need to ask, what is the author of this gospel wanting us to learn? What is the intent? What is the meaning? What is the purpose? And how is this narrative supposed to shape the way that we, that you and I, and that we as a church live. So with that, let's turn to Mark chapter 6. I'll be beginning in verse 30 and reading through 44. The apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest for a while. For there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. They went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. The people saw them going, and many recognized them and ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd, and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. When it was already quite late, his disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate, and it is already quite late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go look. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit down by groups on the green grass. They sat down in groups of hundreds and of fifties. And he took the five loaves and the two fish. And looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and broke the loaves. And he kept giving them to the disciples kept giving them to the disciples to set before them. And he divided up the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. 
and they picked up 12 full baskets of the broken pieces and also of the fish. There were 5,000 men who ate the loaves. Will you pray with me? Father, once again we come to you. We know that the, the very thing we did just now, the words that we read, was the word of God, your word to us. It is the only infallible thing that will take place in this service today is that of the reading of the word of God. It is from your very, from your very mouth to us. Lord, we ask that you would help us today to learn what you would have us to learn. Help us to become what you want us to become. Give us wisdom in how we are to live as you want us to live. In Jesus' name, the most high name we pray, the name above all names, amen. Well, some of you have known this story about the feeding of the 5,000 since you were in preschool. You've heard it hundreds of times in your life. And so, it's a little difficult to look at a text like this with fresh eyes. But once again, I want to ask you to frame this question in your mind. What does the inspired gospel writer want us to learn from this passage, and how is this narrative supposed to shape the way we live? The Bible says to not merely be hearers, but to be doers of the word. What are we supposed to do based upon this text? I want to go ahead and let you know, I want to give you my intention of where I plan to go with this. Um, for those of you who have heard me preach before, you know that I do 99% exposition and about 1% application. I've been told before, a little more ex application. <laughs> well, this morning's going to be a little bit different. This is a pretty straightforward text. We are going to do exposition. We're going to go through it, and then we're going to look at a lot of. Uh, uh, we're going to look at how God wants us to live accordingly, and that might take up a bulk of our message this morning. So, we're going to begin right here in verse 30, the very first verse. The disciples here called the apostles for the very first time, report back to Jesus after their mission. The word apostle was used earlier in the text, but it is a verb referring to Jesus sending them out. That's actually what the word apostle means. Apostolos means to be sent out. Now they come back and they are called the apostles. So they report back to Jesus about their mission. What was their mission? Well, if you look back to verse 7, Jesus had sent them out in pairs and given them authority over unclean spirits. If we look at verse 12, they went out and preached that people are to repent, and they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. So that's what verse 30 is all about. The disciples are relaying to Jesus that experience. Now, none of the Gospels give the details of this recounting, but you can imagine that there was a lot of excitement in their voices as they told Jesus of their exploits, of the healing of the sick, of the, uh, the casting out of demons. Uh, my family and I have been watching The Chosen, and, you know, I could picture Peter, the Peter character, and the music playing in the background as they are just smiling, telling of all the, the wonderful things that have been going on. And as this event is taking place, um, perhaps they're telling Jesus that they had preached the gospel of repentance and forgiveness of sins, or that the Messiah whom the people had been waiting for was just a few miles away if they just walked down the street. Maybe blind people had received their sight. Maybe leprous people had been cured. Maybe the lame 
could now walk. The 12 apostles must have been on the clouds relaying the events. They could do everything Jesus did. Wow. Nothing was going to get these guys down. Right? Well, Jesus can see their excitement, but he can also perceive their exhaustion. They had been doing this for a while. So they are hungry. They are tired from their labor. And so Jesus, being compassionate, calls them away with himself for a time of retreat. Now, these events take place about a year before Jesus' crucifixion. His ministry is winding down. And so in this final year, he turns his attention more away from the crowd toward his 12. You can see this take place very much in the Gospel of John in those last few chapters, well, the, half, the last half of the Gospel of John, verses 13 through uh, his crucifixion. He spends a great deal of time with his disciples, grooming them, teaching them, giving his final instructions to them, imparting to them the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> so the plan was to get away, to get away with Jesus. You can imagine they're thinking, Finally, time alone with the master. Maybe we could sit around the lake, roast some hot dogs, maybe have some s'mores and just enjoy a good time of fellowship. So they get into the boat to cross the Sea of Galilee. Now, the Sea of Galilee was a pretty small lake. It actually, it's more of a lake than it is a sea, and if you were standing on one side on a clear day, you could see clear across to the other side of the lake. Well, it says in verse 33 that the people saw them leaving. And it only took a little while for them to realize, after the boat had been drifting for a while, uh, not drifting, but moving along for a while, where they were going. So you know where this is going, by the way. The crowd of people run around the sea ahead of them, ahead of Jesus, to, to basically uh, meet them when they get to the other side. You can imagine how this played out. People are going around as Jesus and the boat is going across. They're going around the sea. And as they are going, they're going quickly because obviously it's the, the, the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. The, the water is faster, so they've got to go quite fast to get to the other side, don't they? As they are moving quickly, people are looking. Where are you going? What's going on? And surely the crowd begins to grow. So that by the time the crowd is on the other side, there are, now the Bible says 5,000 men. The word there for men is actually a male person. Sometimes the Bible uses the word when it says men, it uses a general term for humans, but this is the case, in this case it's for men. So in reality we're looking at about 20,000 people, counting women and children, waiting for them on the other side of the lake where they are looking forward to a time of rest. Ever happen to you? Expectations, not being fulfilled, looking for a time of rest, looking for a season to recuperate, and life happens, ministry happens. Well, Jesus sees the crowd. He sees them as they uh, pull ashore. The Bible says that he has compassion on them. The word compassion there is a really cool Greek word. I'm not going to say it. It's hard to say. But basically, it is the idea of deep anguish in the gut. Now, we know that when we are experiencing deep emotion, we tend to feel it right here in the gut. 
And that's the word for compassion. Jesus is looking upon this crowd, and he is anguished in his spirit at this crowd. Why? Well, the Bible tells us. They were sheep without a shepherd. And this truly was their condition. Now, they had shepherds. The religious leaders were supposed to be their shepherds. The political leaders were supposed to be their shepherds, in a sense. But both of them alike, they were not shepherding the people. They were more like wolves, preying on the people for their own benefit. And Jesus recognizes this. He recognizes this mass, this crowd of lost souls who are needy and who are lacking a shepherd. A few months ago, we went through the book of Jeremiah. Well, Jeremiah also bemoaned the fact of these shepherds. In Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 6, it says, My people have been a lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray, turning them away on the mountains. From the mountain to the hill, they are gone. They have forgotten their fold. Perhaps Jesus was lamenting as he thought about Ezekiel, chapter 34, where God declares, My sheep have become a prey, and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts. Since there was no shepherd, and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Now, of course, we know that Jesus identifies himself as the good shepherd. We see that in John chapter 10, verse 11, where he says, I am the good shepherd, and I will lay down my life for the sheep. Of this good shepherd, it is written in Psalm chapter 100, verse 30, that we are his people. We are the sheep of his pasture. In Isaiah 40, verse 11, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. And of course, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. So, what does the great shepherd do when he sees this crowd? Verse 34, Jesus teaches them. He teaches them. Now, if we go to the Gospel of Luke, which is a parallel account, Luke says that he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. So that's what he taught them about, the kingdom of God. It also says in Luke that he cured those who needed healing. There were people in the crowd who had come just to be healed, and Jesus healed them. He met their physical as well as their spiritual needs. And in doing so, Jesus fulfilled Ezekiel 34, again, verse 16. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. Verse 35 and verse 36, we can see that this goes on all day. Jesus is depleting himself as he serves, as he heals, as he teaches. The disciples were already tired. They were already hungry. And so now, perhaps out of genuine concern for the crowd, maybe, they come to Jesus and say, will you please send them away? Jesus, send them. There's villages, nearest villages, give, that they can get something to eat, that they can have a place to lodge. Please, Jesus. No, no, no. They didn't say please. They were very demanding. Jesus, send them away. The disciples were adamant, sometimes to the point of disrespect. Can you imagine a disciple disrespecting their teacher? 
I'm a teacher. Never happens. What does Jesus say? You give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. By the way, I think on the board over there, that is the title of our sermon today. Give them something to eat. And that's where I'm drawing from. This is verse 37. Jesus says, you give them something to eat. The disciples panic. We don't have that kind of food, Jesus. We don't have that kind of money. Do you not realize that in order to feed this crowd, it would take 200 days wages to buy bread? In John's gospel, John adds, it would take that much so that everyone could just have a little bit, just a little bit, Jesus. This is impossible. You are asking us to do the impossible. So Jesus asked them, how many fish? Um, Jesus asked them, what do you have? And they say, we have five loaves and two small fish. John also adds where they got the food from, from a little boy. So this little boy brought himself a little basket lunch of five loaves and two small fish. Now, if you have in your mind the picture of a loaf of Trader Joe's bread, you know, the big one that, you know, what, the variety of ones that you can get there, and if you have in your, uh, if you have in your mind a fish the size of uh, a, a large tuna, uh, yellowtail, whatever, not the case. The term loaves here is for what amounts to a small pita bread, about that big, and these fish amount to a large sardine, also about that big. Really, it was a lunch for one, maybe two, if the boy was feeling generous. So not a whole lot to go off of. But what does Jesus do? Jesus commands the people to sit on the grass, and they do it. 20,000 people sit on the grass in an orderly fashion. Hungry people, 20,000, in groups of 100s and 50s. Now, I don't know if you can imagine this, but how easy would it be to get that group into that formation? And yet Jesus does it with such authority, even in this large crowd. It shows both his authority, but it also shows his orderliness. We know from another text that God is not an author of confusion, but a God of peace. You see, in a crowd like this, it would have been very easy to get trampled if you were women or children, these hungry men coming after the bread. So Jesus, in his wisdom, has them sit down. And Jesus, with his power and authority, makes it happen. And so that situation of trampling and injury and so on is not going to take place when Jesus is in charge. And then we turn to verse 41 where Jesus blesses the food. Jesus blesses this insignificant, useless amount of food and then begins distribu distributing it to his disciples to give to the people. Charles Spurgeon calls this multiplication by division. Multiplication and dividing it out, distributing it through his disciples to the people. And what happens? Verse 42, all the people ate to satisfaction. The Greek word there is the word for engorged. It reminds me of 
what I felt like after I used to leave the soup plantation. You know, that feeling of, I'm stuffed. This was not meager. This was not, everybody just gets a barely enough. No, they ate to their satisfaction. They were stuffed. Not a little, but in abundance. It should remind you of another passage, something else that Jesus said in John chapter 10. He says that I have come to give abundant life. And this illustration here of the feeding is an illustration of the abundance that Jesus gives. Now, verse 43. That would have been enough, right? But Jesus isn't finished yet. He tells his disciples now to go and pick up the broken pieces. Now remember, these disciples had been hungry since the beginning of the day. They hadn't eaten all day. And now, um, they, they had been serving all day. They'd been distributing food. But I mean, it, it's possible somewhere along the way they snuck a little morsel into their mouth or whatever. But most likely, they're just passing out bread the whole day. And so, they're starving. They were doing by the hand of the Lord, and I want you to get this point, they were doing by the hand of the Lord the very thing that he commanded them to do. Give them something to eat. They may not have even realized it, but they were giving the people something to eat as Jesus gave it to them. But they hadn't eaten. So what does Jesus do? Well, he makes them each a basket of food for their labor. Twelve baskets, twelve disciples. Do you see both the power and the love of Jesus in this event? Jesus takes care of those who labor for him. Okay, there you go. That's the story. That's the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. What does it all mean? Well, this sermon here, this, this, this passage, this text that we're looking at is, is a year of sermons we could probably spend a year going through this text and Ron and others on the preaching team could, could camp here and preach all the different applications, all the different meanings. Look at it. The compassion of Jesus. We could preach a sermon on the compassion of Jesus. We could preach a sermon on the power of Jesus. We could talk about the need for rest. The disciples were tired and they needed rest. And there's some really great sermons out there on how in this passage, we could look at the fact that we do also need to rest from our labor from time to time. We could talk about the whole idea of sheep without a shepherd and what that means. I have hundreds of verses that I looked at where we could look at that. But this past week, as I was prayerfully reflecting, what kept coming back to me was verse 37. Give them something to eat. Give them something to eat. Jesus talked about food quite a bit during his ministry. He ate a lot of food quite a bit during his ministry, eating and fellowshipping with others, to the point where he was accused of being a glutton because he, had, because he enjoyed eating so much with his disciples, with lost people, the party that Matthew threw, where that's where he was accused of being a glutton. He was not a glutton, by the way, but, but accused of that because of his enjoyment of food that he created. But many times, we see him using physical food as an illustration of spiritual food. One instance of this is Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. Jesus said this in John chapter 6, and John chapter 6 is the parallel account of this 
very miracle. Shortly after doing this miracle in John chapter 6, he says, I am the bread of life. So in this passage, Jesus gives the people something to eat. In verse 37, he tells his disciples to give the people something to eat. In verse 41, the disciples give the people something to eat. So it's all about giving something to eat. Later, when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, he tells the people, stop seeking after food that perishes, but seek after food that is eternal. In John chapter 21, Jesus tells Peter, feed my sheep. Feed them what? Truth. Feed them what? The word of God. Feed them what? The gospel. Again, Charles Spurgeon says, your business as a church today and as a member of the church of Christ today is to feed hungry souls who are perishing for a lack of knowledge with the bread of life. Jesus said it, you give them something to eat. How did the disciples respond when Jesus said, give them something to eat? Let's go back to that in verse 37. <clears throat> Basically, we don't have the resources. We don't have what we need to get the job done. It reminds me of Moses at the burning bush. The bush was on fire. God was talking through the bush. And Moses says, I can't talk good. I can't do that. I can't go, no, send someone else. Please send someone else. Abraham, you're gonna have a baby. I'm too old, God. You can't do that. Gideon, go, mighty man. God, I'm a nobody. I can't do it. So we have a history here of believers and followers saying, God, I can't, I can't. Jesus saying, give them something to eat, and us saying, well, I'm not a person of influence. I don't, know what I, I don't know what to say. I'm an introvert. I really am. I don't know enough theology. I don't know enough apologetics. What if somebody asks me a question and I don't know the answer to it? We're not wrong. We're woefully inadequate for the task. That's actually what the fish and the loaves represent, us being woefully inadequate for the task. Our tendency, just like the disciples, is to look at our resources when we are doing His work. Now that makes sense when we're doing a family budget, a business, and so on. What are our resources? Let's figure out what we have so we can figure out what we need to do. But that's not how it works in the kingdom. It's not our resources, it's His power with our resources. Matthew chapter 14, verse 18, is a parallel account here. And Jesus says something that Mark doesn't record. Jesus says, regarding the fish and the loaves, bring them here to me. I'm pausing for some level of reflection. Think about that. Bring them here to me. Bring them here to me. These inadequate resources you have, bring them here to me. You don't have enough knowledge. Maybe you don't think you're smart enough. Maybe you don't have influence. 
Maybe you have social anxiety. Whatever the case, bring it to me. What do fish and loaves look like in the hands of the Almighty God, creator of heaven and earth? Isn't it interesting? The disciples had returned from doing amazing things. They'd cast out demons. They'd healed the sick by the authority of Christ. Remember? They went out with his authority. And now Jesus says, give these people something to eat. And what do they say? Uh, we, we can't do that. Heal the sick, cast out demons, no problem. <laughs> Anybody can do that. But feeding 5,000, 10,000, 20,000 people? Jesus, you're asking the impossible. This one's just too big. Just too big. I was debating whether I was going to use this illustration or not, but do you remember that scene in The Empire Strikes Back where Luke was with Yoda? The reason I was hesitating using this illustration is because I never, ever want to use Yoda as an illustration for Christ. It's almost blasphemous. But in this case, Luke had levitated some rocks. Remember that? Maybe you don't. It's an old movie. And afterwards, he sits down at a pond, a little pond, and he wants to levitate his X-wing fighter out of the pond. He gives it a try. doesn't work. And then he says, it's just too big. And Yoda says, you judge me by my size? I'm not going to do a Yoda impression. You judge me by my size, and you shouldn't. And then what does Yoda do? Takes the X-Wing fighter, lifts it up, puts it on the ground, everything's fine. And I thought about that. What was the difference between a big, giant spaceship and those rocks? Well, it's a pretty big deal if you're looking at yourself, but it's not a big deal when you're looking at God, who can do these great things. Jesus says in another place, by the way, if that illustration was offensive, I do ask your forgiveness, but it seemed to work in my mind. Anyway, Jesus in another place says, you will do greater works than these. What is he referring to? The miracles that Jesus performed, the great tasks that Jesus had done while he was doing his mission, and he says to his disciples, you will do greater works than these. Now, we can't be too hard on the disciples Put yourself in their shoes. From their perspective, Jesus was asking the impossible. But that's the point, isn't it? Jesus said in another place, I am the vine and you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Do you see this vine branch illustration played out right here in this narrative? Do you see it? We have five loaves. We have two fish. What are they apart from Christ? Nothing. What are they in the hands of Christ? Bring them to Jesus. Do you think that this small church, Sovereign Grace Church of Pasadena, do you not think that they could feed the entire world with the gospel if Jesus willed it? Can you think that big? Verse 41, again, Jesus looked up and blessed it. These loaves, these fish, looked up and blessed it. Let's not pass over that too quickly. You see, the miracle flowed from the blessing. 
And we must never forget to ask the Lord to bless our work. And after that, don't delay. Give it away. There's a temptation to say, for whatever reason, let someone else do it. But what if there is no one else? What if your place of work has no one else? What if your school, college students who are returning back to school in a few weeks, what if your school has no one else? What if you are the only bread for someone else's soul? What if you believe that feeding this city or wherever you live, feeding them the bread of life was all up to us, was all up to you? Paul thought so, didn't he? Verse 42 says that they all ate. They all ate. Remember the parable of the farmer and of the soils? The farmer did not discriminate, did he? He just threw the seed everywhere. Just threw it everywhere. Jesus lived out this parable right here. He fed them all. He fed them all. Think about it. Some of these people in the crowd had been sick, blind, lame. Some had been dying. Some were God-fearers. But do you think in a crowd that size, there might have been a thief or two, an adulterer, maybe even a murderer? All starving for the bread of life. Do we think in those terms also? Do we sometimes withhold the gospel from someone because they might be too bad to be saved, too cold or too hard to believe, maybe too smart? I'm not smart enough to tell them the gospel. They'll shoot me down. Not smart enough. They just won't get it. Too powerful, too stubborn. Jesus didn't think that way, and we shouldn't either. Maybe they seem committed to their own belief. Maybe they seem committed to their own lack of belief. Maybe, I don't know, they're another religion. Buddhist, Muslim, the soil is too hard, right? And yet Jesus had compassion, and he fed them all. And then he tells his disciples, he tells us, give them something to eat. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. He says, you are the salt of the earth. He says, you make disciples of all nations. He says, you give them something to eat. And one final thing. Notice the precision of this miracle. We talked about it a few minutes ago. The disciples were exhausted, and yet they receive exactly what they needed for the task. The work of ministry is exhausting. As I was worshiping out here, I was looking at the worship team. It's a different experience up here than out there. It's a different experience. You receive the blessing. I receive the blessing. But up here, yes, we receive blessing. But there is labor. It causes weariness. And yet Jesus takes care of those who labor for him. Spurgeon writes, to do good, yes, I'm quoting Spurgeon a lot. Spurgeon writes, to do good is to get good and to distribute to others for Christ is the surest way to receive from Christ. Let me say that again. To do good is to get good and to distribute to others for Christ is the surest way of receiving from Christ. So a few reflections 
I'm posing these in the form of questions. And by the way, I do, I do respect the fact that there may be people in this room who are not yet believers. And I understand that this message was directed toward believers. Our task of feeding those who do not have the gospel. But I'm hoping and I'm praying that you understand that there is food here for you as well. There is food here, which is the very word of life, the bread of life that is Jesus. A few reflections for us. What are your two fish? What are your five loaves? Have you brought them to the Lord? Have you asked him to bless those resources? What excuses are you and I offering for not giving this bread of life to hungry souls? What opportunities do you have right now? And what are steps that you might take to put yourself out there so that there might be more opportunities? Several years ago, John Piper had a sermon or a message or something called Don't Waste Your Summer. I remember it. I remember listening to it. I think I made a habit of listening to it every summer. But every summer, we have an opportunity to get outside and talk to our neighbors, talk to our friends about Christ. Don't waste those opportunities. Don't just think about summer that way. It's all year round, but particularly now. Don't waste the summer. Are you praying for doors to open? to declare Christ. Again, Paul did. In Colossians chapter 4, he said, pray for me that God may open a door to declare the mystery of Christ. Paul was in prison, but he says, pray that God would open a door. Pray for yourself, believers, brothers and sisters. Pray for this church and pray for the church worldwide that doors would be open to declare the gospel of Christ. I'd like to close with a couple of illustrations. First of all, I don't know if you are familiar with Justin Peters. He is an apologist and a pastor, and he is, uh, he is a man who has suffered from, I believe, cerebral palsy. He's in a wheelchair, and uh, because of that, he says that he has to get on an airplane last, uh, first, because they allow him to get on the airplane. He sits in the back. Well, he had this wonderful opportunity one time to sit next to a World War II veteran, And as he was talking to this man, the man was recounting the story of the war and how many times he had dodged a bullet and been spared. And seeing that as an opportunity, Justin asked the man very respectfully, have you ever thought about what would have happened if one of those bullets had your name on it? And the veteran said to him, well, Justin, yes, yes, I I have. And Justin said, would you have been ready for that? And, uh, and the man said, uh, to, to the best of my memory, the man said, uh, I, I don't believe I would. And then Justin asked him, well, would you allow me, see how respectful he was, would you allow me to share with you a little bit about how you can be ready? And the World War II veteran looked at him and said, absolutely, I would be delighted. So over the course of the next several minutes, he shared the gospel, the gospel of repentance, the gospel of faith. And after it was over, the veteran turned to Justin and said, Justin, I want to thank you for telling me that. No one has ever told me that. I have never heard that. 
We're talking about a person in their 80s, maybe their 90s, who had never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And not only that, but there was a lady in front who kind of leaned over the seat and said, I want to also thank you, Justin, because I was listening the whole time and I never heard that either. Do you see the opportunities that are right before us? Do you see how many times we, myself included, squander those opportunities? I don't want to talk to anybody on a plane. Just want to put in the AirPods, maybe go to sleep. But the opportunities are there. Pray for the opportunities. Seek out the opportunities. Last week, not trying to blow my own horn because it really was quite a disaster, but <laughs> after I left church, uh, I went to get gas. And at the gas station, I'm parked this way. And there's another car parked the opposite direction right next to me. And um, this young man comes out of the gas station. And I knew I was preaching the sermon this week, so I knew I had to do this. <laughs> but I, I was, uh, I saw him and I said, hi, how are you? And he goes, I'm good, I'm good. And then he sits in his car, he has the car door open, so, you know, and he's, he has his phone, as most people do, he's looking at his phone. And I'm just sitting there thinking, I need to tell this person about Jesus. I, I, I just have to do it. And so I remembered I had these things in my car. These are Ray Comfort tracks, Okay. I don't know if you've heard of Ray Comfort. Check out some of those videos on YouTube. They're amazing. I just walked over to him, and by the way, when this happens, it's not always going to be pretty. All your theology, all your training, gone. <laughs> Hi, do you want one of these? It tells you how to get to heaven. In my book, that's a disaster. I mean, that's not how you share the gospel. But he said, yeah, I'll take that. And, and then... I introduced myself, I said my name, he said his name, and then I walked away going, I turn around, and this is what's going on. He's reading it. He's reading it. Now, I don't know if it was out of respect for me, or if or he really was interested, but he was reading it. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ in this little booklet. I went back to him, talked to him a little bit more, and then I said goodbye, and he took off and went one way, and I went the other, and then I sat in my car, and I just prayed. I said, God, let that, let that soul be saved. Let that person, uh, let that person come to faith. Um, I'm almost done. If you've read uh, Greg Kokel, Greg Kokel is an apologist who has a book called Tactics. And in his book, he has uh, a chapter, I believe, or a, a, an idea called uh, a pebble in the shoe. And the idea is you may not lead a person to Christ every single time you talk to him, but you can put a pebble in their shoe, you know? Something that makes them a little uncomfortable, something that makes them think. So when they walk away, they've got that little discomfort they can think about, they can ponder, and who knows? Over time, more and more pebbles <laughs> until that shoe is full. In this narrative, in this story, those who received and those who believed were fully satisfied. Not every soul is going to be fully satisfied, but at least they'll have a pebble in their shoe. Church, give, give them something to eat. Let's all commit to that. Let's all commit to sharing the gospel. Let's think it through. Let's pray it through. Let's look for opportunities. Let's pray for opportunities. I had a pastor who said a while back, I, I listened to, he said, the church, I don't agree with the first part. He said, the church isn't here for you. We're the church and here, we're here for the world. I'd like to tweak that a bit. The church is here for us, okay? We need each other. 
But that second part is very true. We are the church, and we are here for the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you so very much for sending your son, Jesus Christ, into the world. Thank you so much for sending your word as flesh. Thank you so much for sending him as manna from heaven, the bread of life. Thank you so much for your goodness, for your grace. Thank you for being the first missionary, the first apostle, Jesus Christ. Thank you for this encouragement, this command that we, by your power, by your blessing, can give lost souls something to eat. Lord, help us to see the opportunities every day before us. Help us to be deliberate about those opportunities. Let us put ourselves out there. Let us be courageous and share this message of hope with the world to give every soul we encounter something to eat. We love you, Lord. Make your name famous through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.